Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm so glad you're here. I'm the lead pastor here. Hope to have an opportunity to meet you before the day is over. Um, so, let me, let me begin today uh, by telling you an old rabbinical story about how the spot was supposedly uh, chosen for the Holy Temple. Two brothers, the rabbinical story goes, worked a common field and a common mill, and each night they divided whatever grain they had produced and took each took their own portion home. Well, one brother was single and the other was married, and uh, had a large family. The single brother decided that the married brother, with all those kids, needed more grain than he, the single guy, did. And so, under the cover of night, he started taking a portion of his grain uh, to his brother's granary and adding to his brother's, uh, uh, essentially, income. Well, the married brother... uh, thought about his single brother and the fact that he didn't have kids to take care of him when he got old. So the married brother thought, my brother needs more money than I do. And so uh, he uh, would get grain, and under the cover of night, he would go to his brother's granary, and he would put more grain in his granary. Well, one night, each of them carrying a, a portion of grain to give their brother, they met each other and discovered what each of the, what the other person was doing. And they embraced in the middle of this field. And as the story goes, God witnessed what happened and said, this is a holy place, a place of love. And it is here that my temple shall be built. This act of generosity between brothers Moved God, said this rabbinical story, and he said that that's where the temple should be built. Now, there are a couple of things that I think about when I hear that story. One is uh, that I, I like this idea that these two brothers were trying to win the game of who can be more generous. And it's beautiful, right? It's touching. But I also then thought about playing that game with God. When I was growing up, it was pretty common for me to hear someone say in a church service, you can't outgive God. And the fact is that when you, when you try to be more generous to God than he is to you, it's a pretty fascinating game to play. And that is especially spoken of in our text today from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where the wise writer of Proverbs wrote, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then he, then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. The idea is that you honor God with your wealth, but then God... He's more interested in being generous back to you, and you end up with more than you started with because you're playing a game with God that you can't win because he's always going to outbless you. We've been uh, teaching in recent weeks, as I've mentioned, for those of you who haven't uh, been tracking, 
We've been teaching through Proverbs now in our fifth week, and specifically the last three weeks through a section of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, which offers a series of five wise instructions that are followed by the well-being one will experience if they follow that wise instruction. And the fifth of those wise instructions is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. The Proverbs are about how God designed life to work. The idea in Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 10, is if you do things in alignment with the way God designed life to work, then the result will be some form of well-being, in this case, increase in your life. Now, the Proverbs, as we've mentioned several times, usually speak in terms of probability, which is to say, as one scholar said explicitly, all things being equal, this is how life is meant to work. So if you do this thing that's in alignment with how God designed life to work, then there's good reason to expect that this is what's going to happen. That's how the Proverbs are designed. But this concept of generosity towards God and God's generosity back to us is presented at other times in Scripture, not in terms of probability, but in terms of promise. For instance, the very famous passage in Malachi that's actually a really important passage for reasons I'll describe. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 shows this principle in terms of promise. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, the only time in all of Scripture where God asked people to test him. He says, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. In other words, God says, I promise you, you cannot out-generous me. It's an impossibility. You cannot give me more than I will give you. Uh, and so the fact is then that we're taught to honor God with our wealth, but part of the reason we're taught to honor God with our wealth is in God's desire to give us a life of well-being. This is one of the wise instructions we follow in order for God to fulfill his desire to be generous to us. So the second thing that I think about when I hear this rabbinical story, what's the first thing I think about? I think about trying to play a game of um, who can be more generous with God. The second thing I think of when I think about this rabbinical story uh, about these two brothers and how generosity determined where the temple, the temple of Solomon would be built, is that this story, though nice, isn't true. Right? I mean, if you know very much about the Bible, you, know, you, you, you heard me tell that story. It's a nice story, but in fact, that's not how the site was chosen for the temple. The, 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 the reason that uh, the, the way that the site was chosen for the temple is because David, Solomon's father, David, the second king of Israel, wanted to build an altar for God, and he went to... Uh, 
a threshing floor, a, a flattened, large flattened area of ground where there was a threshing floor owned by a guy named Aranu. I can't even say his name, but anyway, this guy, whatever his name is, owned it. And uh, David said, I want to buy this ground so I can build God an altar here. And uh, I, I'm going to build an altar and I'm going to make sacrifices. I'm going to offer burnt offerings on this altar. And this guy says back to David, you're the king and I want to give you this land. And not only that, I'll give you whatever you need to make these burnt sacrifices. To which David says, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them, and David built an altar to the Lord there. This, according to well-founded tradition and commonly understood by scholars of all stripes, is when the property for the temple of Solomon was built. It was built by an act of generosity, not between two brothers, but in this case, it came from the heart of a king who wanted to build an altar for God, and he said he wanted it to cost him something. He wanted to sacrifice for it. And then the finances that actually paid for the building of that temple, Solomon's temple, David's son Solomon's temple, came from a massive offering that was given by and raised by David. And here's part of what David said uh, at the giving of this great offering. It's in 1 Chronicles 29. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. Listen, guys, this was a massive offering. I, I wish I had time to describe it. There's actually a lot of ink given to this offering in, in Scripture. But the people of Israel, led by David, have brought gold and silver and jewelry and everything they have that can be converted into money. And it is literally piled up like a small hill. And David stands there as this offering is being given to build the temple and praise the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly saying, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Wealth and honor come from you. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. The next day, Solomon was acknowledged as king over Israel, which means there's no doubt that Solomon is standing there watching his dad lead the nation in this massive giving of an offering to build a temple for God, which Solomon was actually able to take and on that ground his dad had sacrificed for, build that temple. That's how the site for the temple was actually selected. It was about generosity, but it was the generosity of David, and Solomon, without question, witnessed the generosity of his father. And so then you hear Solomon as the source of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, and you get a little sense of, 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 of 
the kind of thing that he meant when he said, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. He knew what it was to honor God with one's wealth. He knew what it was to give God one's first and best because he watched his father do it. He had participated in it happening. And Solomon knew what it was to honor God with one's wealth and to give God one's first and best, again, because he watched his father do it. I, I was privileged. I grew up with parents that I saw faithfully, faithfully tithe, generously give when opportunities were given, sacrifice in ways that shaped my life. I hope that my kids have stories like that and that sense of me and Sharon and growing up in our home. But this was the kind of perspective that Solomon had when he talked about this idea of honoring God with one's wealth. And oh, by the way, you know, uh, the kind of character that was built as he, uh, as he watched his father is important too because remember that God came to Solomon when he was a young king and asked him the question, if, I, if, I, if you could have anything you wanted, what would it be? And Solomon chose wisdom instead of money. But when he got wisdom, he ended up having almost unlimited money because he had a perspective about what was really important as it concerns this subject. So I believe then, as Solomon taught us, that we're to honor God with our wealth, that the key to honoring God with our wealth is found in the practice of stewardship. And I'm going to teach about this for a little bit today. Um, and let me, let me just say kind of as a qualifier, if you're new to us and we're blessed every week to have lots of folks visit us for the first time, um, uh, you should know that, that we've been working through Proverbs in a way that has led us to this text. And I'm going to treat this text as I've treated the other texts that have not been about money in recent weeks. And we'll move on from this next week. But today I'm going to talk, as the text leads us to talk, about money. I just don't want you to think that this is what we talk about every week. The reality is once every 18 months or two years, I intentionally will do a message on stewardship. I'm grateful that today I've been led to that by the text. It's, uh, I think, January of 2020, the last time I did a deep dive into the subject. But I'm going to do a deep dive on it today, okay? So... What do we mean when we talk about stewardship? Well, life stewardship, and I want you to notice that stewardship is not just about money. Stewardship is about everything in our life. Life stewardship is the biblical teaching that God is the owner of all we are and all we have and that we are stewards with a God-given responsibility to manage and make more of everything we are and have. And Jesus spoke in terms of stewardship in a well-known passage in the Gospel of Luke. This is the best summation of stewardship, I think, that, that there is in Scripture. Where Jesus said, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, 
Who will trust you with true riches? One of the things that we come to understand in Scripture is that uh, that material things are not ultimate wealth. But the material things can be used to help connect us to ultimate wealth or what Jesus here calls true riches. There's a connection between material wealth and spiritual wealth that then bleeds over into everything in our life. So Jesus says that if we're trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, we can be trusted with true riches. And he says if you've not been trustworthy with, and this is a key stewardship term, someone else's property. A steward is someone who takes care of someone else's property. So Jesus says, if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So at some point, and probably in some ways every day, we decide whether we're serving God or money, and one of the ways we know that we're serving God and not money is when we use money to serve God. So let's uh, talk about four big words for honoring God with our wealth. Four big words for honoring God with our wealth. The first is ownership. Ownership. The primary question of stewardship is who owns it? Now, there might be a lot of people, probably most of you in this room, understand, have some cursory understanding of the concept of tithing. Uh, to, to the point where if I stood here and held a $100 bill and asked how much of the $100 bill was God's, you might very well answer, and I've actually done this before, and typically people say, 10% because they understand the concept of tithing. But the right answer, of course, is to say that God owns it all. When you understand stewardship, you understand that whatever you have is his because it came from his hand. And so the proper answer, according to the teachings of Scripture, is to say that God owns all of it, and we return 10% of, of it to him so that we show that we know he owns all of it. Okay? Uh, so th this is not just true about money. This is true about everything in our lives. This is true of our talent. This is true of uh, uh, parenting is a very important uh, uh, example of this where... Um, uh, when, when we do child dedications here at the Life Christian Church, we talk in terms of stewardship. We say that the fact is that God gave you your child, that your attitude should be that that child is his child, and you've been given the responsibility to care for that child. Now, is it your child? Of course it's your child. But you understand on a higher level that God is the giver of life, and that God gave you the child, and then ultimately, bottom line is, everything that's yours is his. This is true about your home. This is true about your business and everything in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. I mean, what if you saw 
God as the owner of your business. It's a, it's a perspective change that really will influence the way that you think about your business, conduct your business, and hopefully to do it in a way that honors God, who is the, the owner of it. So this is the idea of, 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 of life stewardship. And this is essential to understanding David and Solomon's attitude about money. I love this passage, 1 Chronicles 29, 14, when David's given the offering I talked about a few moments ago, and Solomon's standing there watching his dad do this. David said, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. So when it comes to honoring God with our wealth, as Solomon taught us, we begin by understanding that what is ours is actually his. It's all his. Now with this in mind, let's talk about what, what Solomon and the otherwise writers of, of Proverbs said about wealth. As I mentioned last Sunday, as, as I was wrapping up the message and, 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 and getting us set up for this Sunday, the writers of Proverbs generally take a positive view of wealth. As long as the wealthy person has a proper attitude about money, including and especially understanding that God owns it and it's to be used for his purposes. Here's a sampling of what Proverbs says about wealth. I'll go through five or six passages just real quickly and, and kind of try to sum them up. Uh, here's, here's, here's one concept. It's that wealth is good, but wisdom is better. Proverbs 8. 18 through 19, wisdom says, with me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. Now, wisdom here is talking about material things, but then says, my fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. So wisdom says, if you'll if you'll listen to me and do life the way it was designed, you should expect riches and honor and enduring wealth and prosperity, but actually you should also know there's something better than fine gold, and that is wisdom. We're also told in Proverbs that a fool can become rich, but that it won't last, and certainly not forever. Proverbs 11.4 says, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. When you think about what wealth really is, you have to ask, as I think Tim Keller says in his devotional on Proverbs that many of us are reading through during this trimester, you have to ask the judgment day question. Will this endure the, 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 the judgment on the last day? And the fact is that, that one can have lots of money, but if it, if it doesn't stand on the last day, then it's not truly true riches. It's not enduring wealth. It didn't actually matter. And you, you, you remember then the story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke where he talked about someone that's called the rich fool. A guy that made a lot of money, kept building bigger barns and so on and so forth in order to take care of all the things that he'd accumulated. But then God comes to him and says, this night your soul's required of you. What are you going to do with all this stuff? And he said, you're, you're rich, but you're foolish because you were not rich toward God. Uh, we're also told in Proverbs that many things are more important. Many things are more important than financial wealth. For instance, Proverbs 16, 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold? Or Proverbs 28, 6, better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. 
Proverbs 22.1, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than gold or silver. We're taught in Proverbs that if you become wealthy the wrong way, then your wealth is of no true value. Proverbs 10.2, ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value. Or Proverbs 17.20, one whose heart is corrupt does not prosper. We're taught in Proverbs to not chase wealth. Proverbs 23.4, do not wear yourself out to get rich. We're taught in Proverbs to not trust wealth. Proverbs 11.28, those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. We're taught in Proverbs, interestingly enough, that God will help us acquire wealth. I think that's assuming that all these other things that are being done as God designed it. Proverbs 10.22 says, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. We're also told that generosity, repeatedly we're told that generosity is required of a wealthy person and that a generous person will prosper more having been generous than if they had not been generous. Proverbs 11, 24 through 25, one person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Now, again, many of you probably just blanked out on that last section because you're thinking, I'm not wealthy. I don't know what this has to do with me. But it, but as I mentioned last week, if you earn an income of $40,000 a year, you make more money than 99% of people in the world. If you earn an income of just $13,000, you're in the top 10% of the world. How many of you now feel rich? You feel rich. The fact is that wealth is whatever we have regardless our level of income. All right, so the first big word to think about stewardship is to answer the question, and this is the most important question, who owns it? Now, guys, this is something I know, having spent years being a pastor of a local church and doing this kind of teaching. There are people in this room who will take what I just said and it will change everything about your life. And this is what I know. This is the kind of thing. I know this isn't the most exciting teaching you're ever going to hear from me. Okay? It's one of the most important teachings you'll ever hear from me. It is. When you can answer the fundamental question of who owns it, it will shape everything about your perspective in life. Again, I'm not, money is part of it. It's a significant part of it, but it's everything. Everything in your life should be stamped with a stamp that says, this is the property of God. All right, now here's the second big word. It's manage. So when I talk about life stewardship, I, it's about who owns it, and then it's, it's now we're managing God's property. So, when I think about what it means to honor God by managing wealth, I think about a lot of things, but these would include things like, first of all, work. You have to, first of all, earn something to manage. 
And hard work is celebrated in Proverbs. Oh, do the writers of Proverbs ever go after lazy people? Holy moly, it is amazing. Uh, Proverbs 24, 30 through 34, I went past the field of a sluggard. You know what a slug is? It's a little creepy looking thing without a shell and it moves really slowly. Well, lazy people in Proverbs are often called sluggers. Not politically correct perhaps, but I don't know what to tell you. I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and I learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little pushing of the snooze button two or three times. A little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Proverbs 26, 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. Proverbs 22, 13. A sluggard says, there's a lion outside and I'll be killed in the public square. In other words, a sluggard has all kinds of excuses about why they're not going to get out there and go after it about whatever it is in life. Get out there and work on your marriage. Get out there and work on your business. Get out there and work. Whatever it is, if we're going to be successful and prosperous, God designed life for us to work on it. Secondly, I think about budgeting. The fact is uh, that we must have an understanding of our income and expenses and live within our means. Now, I'm speaking to a group of people who uh, I'm sure many of you have a much greater understanding of this than I do, but uh, thank God for being taught as a kid by my parents the simple principle that you live within your means. You know how much you have, and you don't spend more than you have, and this is a fundamentally important part of life. But clearly, there are lots of folks who either don't understand this or don't practice this. This is a scriptural principle. Proverbs 27, 23, and 24. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. I know it's weird when you read scripture sometimes that money is often spoken of in agrarian terms because the economy was driven by agriculture and a lot of time people's household uh, income was, was shaped by what they grew or by their herds or their flocks. And so a lot of times when you're reading scripture and you see things about seed or you see things about harvest or you see things about having a herd or a flock, it's, it, it translates as currency. It's, it's money. So, so what the wise writer of Proverbs is saying here is know the condition of your money. Be aware of what you have, what you don't have. Give careful intention, attention to it because riches do not endure forever. Proverbs 17, 16 says, why should fools have money in hand to buy wisdom when they are not able to understand it? We need to put forward the effort to understand money, what we have, what we spend, etc. I also think about debt. Proverbs 22, 7 famously says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. One of the most important things my parents ever taught me, it is so simple, but it is so important. They taught me in line with biblical teaching to never put anything on a credit card that I couldn't pay in full at the end of a month. And since I got my first credit card at I think 18 years old, to my knowledge, I have never paid a penny of interest on a credit card. 
which means that for many, 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 many years when our income was relatively small in comparison even to the population we were serving, when you're not saddled with consumer debt, you have a certain amount of financial freedom to invest in other ways that help you many times live above your means, which is really me and Sharon's story for many, many years, is we have been blessed in ways that far surpass income levels. Uh, and a lot of that is just simple, fundamental doing things like knowing how much money came in, knowing how much money went out, putting aside money for saving, putting aside some money to invest, practicing returning the first fruits to God, not paying consumer debt. So your credit card balances, and last time I looked this up was 2018, so forgive me for the, for the old news, but uh, the, it still makes the point, and, and I think the numbers would still be similar. Credit card balances reached $944 billion in 2018. The average credit card debt per person in the United States at that time was $15,561, of which $6,929 was revolving debt carried from month to month. But let's just say someone has $2,000 on their credit card with an 18% annual rate and that, that they make the minimum monthly payment. It will take 370 months or over 30 years to pay off that $2,000. Was it worth that recreational shopping spree? Here's the deal, guys. When we get ourselves in that kind of a situation, we are not honoring God with our wealth. We're managing his money. And he, one of the things, and I have a very practical way, I'm going to try to help those of you who may be struggling with this later. I'm not just going to preach about it. I have something wonderful to talk to you about. When, 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 when we get ourselves out of that kind of situation and start working towards financial freedom, this is an amazing thing that honors God. And he is pleased when we manage our money. Well, let me say it this way. He is pleased when we manage his money properly. Now, I, I will say, and there is some disagreement about this among Christian teachers, I am not opposed to borrowing money in a properly proportioned way to invest in an appreciable asset that will bring a return at the end. For instance, borrowing money to buy a home where there's good reason to believe that you're going to end up building equity. I, I, I think that that's wise money management, frankly. Or investing in a business that's going to, making a capital investment that's going to bring you a return. I think the, the, the thing that we always have to ask when it comes to borrowing is, is this going to, is, is this an unwise thing that's going to put me in a position to be a slave to the lender. But sometimes wisdom, especially at today's interest rates for these types of things, sometimes wisdom is using someone else's money to build wealth, and that's as much financial advice around anything like that as I'm going to give except to say, I don't want someone to, you know, so, so some people will say, uh, uh, and people I respect, cut up all your credit cards. Well, if you can pay your credit card off every month and you know you can do that, well, Sharon and I are going on a, on, 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 away for a, a few days sometime soon and five nights of our hotel are being paid for by 
points on a credit card that we've never paid any interest on. You understand? So there are ways... There are ways to be wise, but you, we can't get in a position of being a servant to the borrower. And now, there are a lot of other things said in Proverbs about how to manage money. We're, we're encouraged to save money. We're encouraged to, 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 to use money as a shelter, or we could talk about in, being properly insured. Uh, 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 Proverbs 13.22 says, A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. What would This is how God does. This is when God looks at you and says, I want to bless you and do good things in your life. He, he, he also is saying, here is wisdom about how you should conduct yourself around finances because I can't help you if you have $20,000 on an interest on a credit card and you're paying 18% interest on it. So God says, I love you so much. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pay attention to your money and I don't want you to get in that kind of a position because I want you to be blessed in your life. All right, here's the third thing. Man, am I ever running out of time and am I going to go over my norm? Well, I don't know what normal is. Three, invest. I wish I had time to talk about this. I'll be quick with this, but I've become more and more convinced that part of stewardship is making more of what we've been given. It's not just keeping what we have, it's making more of it. Um, in biblical times, so, so Proverbs 28, 19 says, those who work their land, again, you have to think in terms of agriculture, planting seed, doing what's necessary to harvest the seed, ending up at harvest with more than what you, uh, 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 with, with a proper return. Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies will have their fill of poverty. So, um, uh, we're not to chase fantasies. We're not to play get rich quick schemes. We're not to, I mean, I, I don't know that the Bible, the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not play the lottery. But would you agree that playing the lottery is chasing a fantasy? Anyway, I'm not going to go any further there. If you win, tithe. That's the only other thing I'll say. <laughs> but Jesus, re- <laughs> don't play the lottery. But if you do play the lottery, <laughs> Oh, the Bible says something about using the wealth of the foolish or something like that. But so, you know, Jesus had had that famous parable where he gave several, he talked about giving several guys uh, a a certain amount of money and he told them, he said, make this money work for you. That's exactly, that's how the NIV says it. Make this money work for you while I'm gone. And he, he goes away and he comes back and one guy took the, what he'd been given and he, he'd increased it by 900% and he gets rewarded. And another guy took what he'd been given and he increased it by 400% and he gets rewarded. And, and, and another guy took what he'd been given and he hid it in his safe because he was afraid he was going to lose it. And that guy got in big trouble. And not only that, but Jesus took what he had been given and he gave it to the guy who'd made the most, which blows some people's minds. You're thinking Jesus isn't very nice. No, in all four gospels, it's one of the few things that's mentioned in all four gospels. At the end of whatever version of this parable there is, Jesus says to him who has will be given, and to him who has not will be taken away. In other words, he's saying, now listen, we're taught in Scripture we're to care for the poor. We're taught in Scripture that um, the Proverbs teaches that injustice is one of the reasons that there's poverty. Our attitude towards folks in poverty needs to be an attitude of generosity and care and love and so on and so forth. But you should know God's goal for you isn't poverty. 
That's not his goal for you. And, 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 and so some people kind of get confused about some of the teachings of Scripture, and I don't have time to get into it all today. But being poor in spirit has nothing to do with being financially unable to pay your bills. It's about an attitude before God. So don't get confused about that. He, he, if you're in poverty, he wants to lift you out of poverty. And, and the fact is that we have something to do with it. And what we have to do with it is living life the way God designed it. And so we should, young people, start budgeting in a way where you're not just saving something for a rainy day, but you're putting aside money to invest. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not saying where you should invest. I, I'm not a financial counselor. But, uh, find somebody who has wisdom about investing and seek their advice. But it could be investing in the stock market. It could be investing. Sharon and I, years ago, the Life Christian Church had a bond-raising program where we sold $7 million of bonds in order to build this church. And Sharon and I took our retirement and purchased church bonds with it. Well, a few years later, uh, the church paid off all all of those bonds, but we reinvested in other churches' bonds, and that's proven to be a wonderful investment for us, and I love it because we're helping churches be able to do things like this, and we're earning a rate of return that's actually proved to be about what has been earned in the stock market in recent years. I'm, so, so invest in something. Invest in something that's a good cause. Invest in your creativity, your investment may be writing a book that brings value or, or in, 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 invest in, uh, their, invest in a person or invest in an idea. But make sure you are investing in a way where there's an expectation of return. And here's the final word. It's first fruits. Actually, I thought it was a word. It's two words. I thought it was first-fruits. And why do I say that? Because my headline here is are four words for honoring God with your wealth. And this is two words. So I apologize. All right, let me spend a few minutes around this. First-fruits. First-fruits were the first and best of someone's income. One very important way that we honor God with our wealth is we bring him the first fruits. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. It's commonly understood that the first fruits is a reference to the tithe in Scripture. Tithe means 10%. That's literally what tithe means. Tithe literally means the definition of tithe is 10%. The tithe was the first and best of one's increase or income. And the word first is very important to this subject. Deuteronomy 14.23, Living Bible Translation, final sentence of the verse says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. Guys, there's a principle in Scripture that when we return to God what is first, he blesses the rest. Another way to say that is that when we recognize the tithe as holy, he sanctifies the rest of what we have. This is very important. We return the 10%, he sanctifies the 90%. He blesses it in a way that is unique to a person who practices this principle. Leviticus 27.30 says, A tithe of everything from the land belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And so, um, check out... A Rob Belcor sitting here in the room right now was kind enough. I, I, he shared this with me 
uh, some time ago, and I asked the guys to get a video of Rob talking about his experience with first fruits. My name is Robert Belcourt. I've been attending TLCC uh, going on three years now. My, myself, my wife, Lorraine, a year and a half ago, I was in church and somebody was speaking on tithing. And the young lady was talking about giving the first fruits. I was giving my tithes, but what I was doing was I was piecemealing my tithe together. I maybe put a half here and then on the back end, piecemealing it together. There was definitely a fear attached to it, right? Not getting certain bills paid. Talking about three daughters, one, my one daughter, Faith, has finished school. Ava's in her last year. Lexi's gonna be going into school. I've got college bills. I have mortgage payments, car payments. And you wanna honor the commitment that you that you make for these bills. And they're, they're bills that everybody has. I was always committed to tithing. The question was, was I committed to tithing first? It was more of paying other bills first that I thought were more important. I was convicted by it. And what's the opposite of fear is faith, right? So we have to step out in faith and know that the Lord has our back. And once I changed that mindset and that paradigm shift to say, hey, this money is not mine, none of it's mine, but this first 10 has gotta go uh, to the Lord first. There's something about that first commitment. So I challenged myself and my wife and we started cutting that that tithe check first. Since then, the Lord has really opened up the barn gates. My company had a banner year, and I truly do believe it was, the turning point was when I decided to, to start to tithe first. And guys, I was there. I was there during post-pandemic. Is the income gonna still be there? He's faithful, and if you stay faithful, he's faithful back. You know, we can't, we can't outgive God. Um, I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel in regards to you're doing it because you're expecting something back. I just had a flashpoint during that time frame to say that I wasn't being faithful and doing it first. So I encourage everybody to change the mantra of giving the Lord the first. And I promise you, the barns will be over full. Thank you for your time. Great, Rob. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And there are hundreds and hundreds of people in this church who would have similar stories. Let me start to wrap this up. Um, one of the things that uh, is important and people will sometimes have questions about is what's the origin of tithing? Is it relevant today when you read the Old Testament passages about uh, a tithe from the land and so on and so forth? I, I, I like to say to, to folks that tithing began in Abraham, with Abraham, uh, in faith prior to the law. It began in faith and it was codified in the law and then Jesus came along and said that it's something that we should do. Matthew 23, 23, a New Living Translation, you should tithe. Yes, that's what Jesus said. And Greek grammarians say that, that those words are offered as a moral imperative. Jesus is very clear, you should tithe, yes. But uh, sometimes 
uh, folks will say, you know, there's not very much said in the New Testament about it. There's a lot said in the Old Testament about it. And I would just remind you, those of you who've been tracking over the last few weeks, I would remind you of the, of the principle in Scripture. I, I taught about a couple of weeks ago what I was talking about, the commands of Scripture, and how that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said someone who keeps his commands is like a wise person who builds their house on a rock. And then he says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. And we, we have to, we have to be more righteous in keeping commands and particularly the moral commands than the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he sets a higher standard for his followers than those who follow the law. He said, you know, the Old Testament says, don't murder. I say, if you hate in your heart, then you've committed murder. The Old Testament says, don't commit adultery. I say that if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. The Old Testament says an eye for an eye, but he says we have a higher standard. Turn the other cheek, give somebody your coat, walk the extra mile. To which I would simply say that this principle is important. Whatever the standard is, Around honoring God in the Old Testament, the standard is higher under Jesus. And part of it is that not only do we tithe, but Jesus taught that we're supposed to tithe from our hearts. It's supposed to be something that's in our heart. And that, in fact, is the context of Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus said, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. In other words, he, and this is true, true all through New Testament teachings for followers of Jesus. We don't just do a thing, we do it from our heart out of love for God and love for our brothers and sisters. We don't just think because we return the tithe, everything's fine. We return the tithe remembering to keep even more important things fresh in our minds, justice, mercy, how we treat other people, all the other teachings of Scripture. So Jesus said, of course you're supposed to tithe. But there's more to it than that. Essentially, he's saying, I want you to tithe from the right place in your heart. I want your motivation to be proper in your tithing. And I want you to see this as connected to everything else that's important about following me. I wish I had more time to teach about this. I'll just close, close with this. Um, oh, 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 and by the way, I think that all of us could, under, could agree. Jesus was an observant Jew. His followers were observant Jews. There is not a chance in the world that they weren't tithers. It was so commonly understood as a practice to be performed that there wasn't a need to say a whole lot about it. It was like a big duh. Of course you tithe. But Jesus said, I want to raise the standard. I want you to tithe from your heart. I want you to do it for the right reason. All right, so the first purpose of the tithe is for us to put God first from our wealth. The secondary purpose is that the tithe provides the financial means 
for God's work to get done in the earth through the church. This was true in the Old Testament church. This is true in the New Testament church. A very important principle, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. The Malachi passage about tithing is very important because it comes at the end of the Old Testament in the context of a prophecy for the New Testament. Malachi 3 is about the Messiah coming, about Jesus coming, which he's about to do in Matthew 400 years later. So this, this is a tithe in the context of the prophecy of the beginning of the New Testament church. And, and God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And um, I think it's important to understand that we are supposed to, my understanding is, what I was always taught and what I've come to believe, we're supposed to tithe where we are fed so that there's food in the storehouse. And where we're fed is about more than just hearing a sermon. You might hear a television preacher preach a sermon and you feel fed and, and you say, oh, I'm going to send my tithe there. Well, I would say, if you feel moved to send a gift, send an offering an offering is something given above the 10%, but the tithe goes to where you're fed, and being fed is about more than hearing a sermon or reading a book that moves you. It's all the things your local church does to minister to you. It's preaching and teaching and K-Port and Redline and providing a place to worship and an online experience to all of our online people. Hi, I forgot to say hi to you. I'm so sorry, which is actually an expensive thing to make happen. It's about... Uh, uh, it, it's about all it takes to manage a network of life groups and provide opportunities to serve. It's all the stuff that a church does to help bring you spiritual life. And the understanding is that our tithe is to go to the place where we're fed. I would say, if you're here today, you're visiting from another church and you're being fed at another church, you tithe there, not here. Someone may have said, I was just about to tithe $100,000. Well, it shouldn't be ours. It should be your local church's tithe. That's the way that it seems that Scripture meant for it to work. So, and, and here's another principle. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The local church can do what God created it to do when there's plenty of food in the house, when you have the resources that you need to carry forward its mission. And so um, I just felt like that was a principle. It's been a while since I shared that principle, and I wanted to share it today. So um, now I have a wonderful announcement. We're not going to do closing song, by the way, in case you're nervous about the time, which I don't suspect you are, actually. But we have an announcement to make that I'm really, really excited about. And I want to thank Kevin McCollum and his team, Elise and so on, for researching this and coming up with this idea. For many years around here, we have offered a course uh, from the Ramsey uh, uh, Company, a Bible-based company around finances. We've offered a course called Financial Freedom. It's about it's developing a plan to get out of debt. It's developing a plan to begin to build wealth. It's, about, it's not about tithing. It's about you and you managing your money in a way that creates financial freedom. I think they do mention tithing, um, but it, it's not, it's not, that's not the point. The point is your finances. And for years, we've offered a course once a year. It usually costs $130 per person for this course. Well, we have made a very significant investment 
where we are making this course absolutely free for everybody who's a part of the Life Christian Church. If you look in a seat back pocket close to you, or those of you online, you can sign up for Ramsey Plus by clicking the connect link. And I think this is all this information is going to live on the stewardship button on our GPS pathway. But if you will reach into the seat back pocket close to you, you'll pull out a card and you will, there's a QR code on this card that will get you linked up to Financial Peace University, which is about all the things I just mentioned. Uh, budgeting, a budgeting seminar to help you uh, develop a budget, uh, a smart money management uh, teaching for kids, a, uh, and, and, and so on. Anyway, our hope is that hundreds of families in our church will take advantage of this and work on your budget and develop a plan to get out of wealth a couple of weeks uh, uh, last time we talked about this uh, we had a woman share a testimony who went to this course financial peace university and paid off something like hundred and eighty thousand dollars of college debt in a matter of like two years or three years because she developed a plan my prayer for you is that you will honor God with your wealth which also means taking care of your money in such a way that you can live in financial freedom and abundance.